Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. In this episode, I speak with Colin from the Consistent Calvinist Podcast. We talk about, uh, we do basically a, an extended review of the Provisionist Statement of Faith uh, and give some, uh, some critical comments there and some engagement there, as well as uh, about the uh, structure and the, the polemical bent and, and rhetoric of the statement itself. So we give our thoughts on that. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much again for stopping by. Uh, if you want to check out uh, the more of my content, you can find me uh, on any any of the wonderful podcast apps or find me on YouTube or visit the blog freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or you can check out Consistent Calvinist on YouTube, uh, Consistent Calvinism, uh, a Calvinist where uh, any, again, any podcasts are found or you can find him on Twitter at C Calvinist. Uh, and and check out uh, his engagement there. You will be uh, you'll be really blessed by checking that out. So uh, we will dive right into this lengthy episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, today I am joined with Colin from uh, the Consistent Calvinist podcast. I'm, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge, huge fan uh, of, uh, of this podcast um, and, and, and the interactions on Twitter and everything from this. So I am so excited, uh, Colin, to have you here. Thank you so much. I, I guess this is a joint effort. So uh, yeah. you're, you're not here. I'm not there. Uh, thanks for joining right. with me on this. So it's good to have Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry for the delay. We uh, we've certainly planned this for a while. At least we had it mentioned. Um, but I'm happy to be here. Um, looks like we're going to be talking about provisions, provisionism today. Yes. Yeah. Def- provisionism and freedom and and all the fun stuff to go along with it. Um, but before we get started, uh, since um, uh, you know this this is going on on my my podcast as well, um, why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about yourself and why did you start the consistent calvinist podcast you've been doing this now for about a a little under a year now yeah i think it was december of last year that i started and you know if life could be perfect and i could have everything the way i would want it um i'm working on getting myself financially independent right now i would love to do something like this full time but i just uh i have a job plus i'm trying to start a side business and a side project and the reason I just ha- I couldn't take it anymore, I had to start the podcast, uh, ironically, is the topic tonight is, is uh, you know, the provisionist spokesperson, uh, Leighton Flowers, uh, uh, found him from Dr. White, obviously, and started listening more and more. And I just reached a point where I, and maybe it's, I'm not saying that there aren't Calvinists out there who, who are properly addressing him, but I reached a point where it, it might have just been where, based on who I was listening to at the time or whatever, maybe I missed it. 
I just thought that he wasn't being answered as well as he could be. And so um, that's why I started the podcast. And I think it's it's been doing pretty well so far. A lot of people like it. They think that it helps them eat more easily understand. You know, you don't have to be sitting in the high tower, uh, you know, thinking on these things constantly. I, I spent over 10 years listening to these debates. And uh, I've had the, the plan for a while, but it was listening to Leighton Flowers that actually pushed me to actually finally do it. So, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate um, your episode. I mean, you're, 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 I don't have a lot of podcasts, uh, that I subscribe to, um, on, on a pretty regular basis. And you're one that like every week uh-huh. I'm like, is there one out? Is there one out? <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, like I, just... I said, man, I wish the timing, I, I wish I had more free time and ah. it's sort of like nothing's perfect and, and so on and so forth. I also want to say, um, your, your fans obviously already know, but I want to say for my listeners, um, I very rarely go on what I would call marathons. Um, I've done James White marathons and long time ago I would, you know, do, I, I, I started my, my everything with a Paul Washer marathon, which led to James White, which led to a little bit of Piper. And, but I, I want to say that you have been someone who I have, I, I, I have to go look and find more stuff. You just do really good stuff. I, and, um, I would just encourage my listeners to not only look at your podcast, but go to YouTube and type in Tyler Vela debate. And you've got tons of, of really good debates there too. I, I did your open theism one. Um, not, not the Warren McGrew one. I've obviously listened to that, but you had another open theist one. You had a Romans nine one and it's just all really good stuff. So. Well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And I, you know, for, sure. I, I, I think that one of the reasons why I really like your podcast is you are, you are very methodical, very clear, um, and, and very, you're very precise in your language and your description, which, which I, which I really appreciate. Sometimes uh, podcasts, even ones that I like, can can kind of turn into sermonizing and meandering and wandering, uh, uh-huh. or or talking about the weather uh, or <laughs> or one's bike ride. But I won't get to, I won't, I won't name any names or anything like that. So sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> even when well, I, I, even when I appreciate them. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, your, yours, yours has been even, uh, you know, for, for me, I've been saying this for a long time and, and every time I listen to your, to your shows, I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a really good way to say it. That's a re- that's really clear. That's really concise. Um, and I think that, um, one of, one of the outcomes of this and, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this, um, is that, <clears throat> is that Leighton Flowers has been responding to you. Um, and I think because you're so clear and concise, you are kind of forcing him to make concessions that he might not other otherwise yeah. have made. I, I wish I he would have picked. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that all by the way, but I, I wish he would have picked. <laughs> um, you know, as a podcaster, you know, you have what you would consider really strong episodes and maybe a little weaker. I, I wish he would have picked some of the stronger ones, but he, he's obviously trying to fuel his show and his uh, his talking points. But that's understandable. Yeah. But yeah. um, but it's good to be engaged nonetheless. Very true. Very true. All right. Well, well, you know, now now that we have now that we've back patted each other for, for a bit of time, uh, <laughs> um, let, let's dive in. Um, so we wanted to talk about uh, a couple of things, but mainly in and around uh, in and around provisionism. Right. And yep. provisionism for, for people who don't know you. It used to go under the name, you know, SBC traditionalism or traditionalism. And that that came under a lot of fire for being rather. Uh, anachronistic and somewhat misleading of a title, so I, I'm I'm glad they've gone toward toward a different name, provisionism. It's kind of unmuddied the waters a little bit, um, but th- yeah. this is a position of um, 
it's it's still a minority position within the SBC, if if I if I understand it right, um, because the SBC is is largely split between kind of evangelical Arminian and and Calvinist. I'm not sure that the the provisionist is, is the majority view yet, although it seems to be it seems to be growing among kind of evangelical Arminians and, and non classical yeah. theists. Yeah, and in fact, if we're going to be reading from their statement of faith page on Soteriology 101, and the top the top the first thing it says is. Uh, uh, watch this video to better understand why we prefer the label provisionism over Arminianism or traditionalism. And um, so, yeah, we're going to talk about why they uh, those differences. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so so I think it's important to clear the air because, uh, you know, our our side commonly makes the mistake of saying that that provisionism is Arminianism. Um, uh -huh. or, or anything like that. So we, you know, we want to be clear before we're going in, uh, the, the provisionism is distinct from Arminianism. It, it is, it is, it denies, right. It denies the one fundamental aspect of, of Arminianism that keeps Arminianism within the provisionist or with, sorry, within the, the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the semi Augustinian camp, <laughs> right. which is namely that, that, that Arminians still believe in, <laughs> they still believe in original sin and in, in some type of provenient grace where God has to act first and immediately yep. on the person to overcome. So we'll, we'll talk about that, but before people, you know, get, get confused, let, let's just stay out from the outgo, but provisionism is not just another word for Arminianism, so right. uh, we do need to be careful of that. So, uh, why don't why why don't you get us started and say, you know, what what is provisionism? What you know, where, what are the what are the key distinctives of uh, of provisionism? Well, their their acronym is a uh, quite long. Obviously, we would have a tulip. They've got provide, um, and I'm just going to read through it. Just the main points here. It says uh, people sin, uh, which separates them from fellowship with God. They're responsible which is able to respond to God's appeal for reconciliation, open door for anyone to enter by faith, vicarious atonement, provides a way for anyone to be saved by Christ's blood, illuminating grace, provides clearly revealed truth so that all can know and respond in faith, destroyed uh, for unbelief and resisting the Holy Spirit, and then eternal security for uh, all true believers. So what I did is I, I assembled a, a bunch of notes on my end and I found a common theme as I started building on them more and more, and, and that is that they have a—they're going to be offended by this, but I'm just going to say it—they have a very low view of sin. Um, and it it's sort of like a, well, sin just sort of happens. Uh, oops, it's its almost accidental, and, and I really don't think they have a proper understanding of what, what the idea of rebellion, that it's purposeful, willful, intentful rebellion, and it, and it, it paints a picture— and and before they start shouting, uh, we're going to talk about we're going to flush this out. But it paints a picture in my mind that we're somehow inherently good, and we just mess up every now and then, right? And I think that th this this is what leads to the overall provisionist attitude that that well we just we have to recognize that we've messed up and we, and we need a saver rather than understanding that we love our sin, right? It's something that that is a, an intentful, willful thing on our part, right? Um, and, and we need to be saved from our own wicked hearts, right? And uh, we need a powerful change in our heart, which is uh, the basis of our desires, and we'll, we can talk about free will and desires later on. But um, what, what are your thoughts on that so far and their view of sin in general? Yeah, well, I mean, my, my, my original thought for a lot, for a lot of these— um, and, you know, this, 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 is, this is one of my, my issues with— 
with provisionism is that provisionism seems to bear itself out by doing by doing negative theology. Right. It, it it kind of creates itself by saying we're not Calvinism. And so what it means is when push <laughs> comes to shove, they're not very clear on what they actually believe and act and why they believe it. So like a bunch of this stuff in the acronym, <laughs> like I'm not sure the way that it's the way that it's uh, the way that it's stated that I disagree with any of it, um, <laughs> right, depending yeah. on what you mean by it. So uh, because it because it's so vague and open. Um, and so so there's that. The, the other thing is, I, I do agree that through the what what is missing from this, and I think it is indicative of what you're saying. What's missing from this is really that that initial condition. So, you know, as Calvinists, as reformed, we, you know, we hold the tulip right in that. And, and I normally describe tulip as the T, the total depravity is kind of the initial conditions, the initial state. And the ulip, right? Everything else is almost like this rest, this this Russian nesting doll of this of this very tightly consistent, interconnected doctrines. One flows from the other, but right. like they, they're just kind of in the context. They're in the water of that of that total depravity. That's the situation within which you understand it all. Um, and so and so sin is sin is the 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 initial condition. It's the pervasive problem. That uh, that 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 all people are um, are dead in sin. We we have, and that sin means we have no hope. We have no ability. We have we you know we have no ability for righteousness. We we are dead. We have a deadened heart. Right. I mean, all of that biblical language around it. Right. So we take a very strong view uh, of that as as really a a an insurmountable problem. And here in the provisionist, uh, in, in the statement of faith. Sin, you're absolutely right, is almost like this little like, oh, it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it separates us from fellowship, from fellowship with God. Like, right. it, it, it's like this is, it's like a social faux pas um, that, that kind of just, it, it means that, you know, um, you, you've kind of just like offended the, the party host. Um, yeah, it's like, um, it's like you messed up and you've been kicked out of the cool kids club and you need to do better uh, to, to get let back in rather than understanding that you willingly separated yourself from God uh, as a sinner, right? Yeah. I, I mean, not even separated. Your, I, I mean, I would just say that the, the separation from God language, while it's meaningful, I mean, it's, it is, you know, you are downright enemies of God, right? You are, you, you know, well, not you, but, you know, though, apart from Christ, you, uh, we, we are, yeah. um, you know, we, we are damnable wretches. We are, we are dead in our sin. We love, we love our sin and we downright hate God apart from Christ, right? If it was not for Christ and the Holy Spirit working in me, working in you, working in, in Leighton, uh, we, we would all just downright hate God. Um, right. even, even if we had an outward religiosity, um, we, we, would, we, would severely, we would severely hate God in, in, in very perverted ways. Um, uh, not perverted in the in the light in the licentiousness sense, but but perverted in the it is a perversion of um, you know the 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 true way that we are created to, to image God, um, uh, but we are we are broken, we are we are dead and, and and gone in sin, and I think that that is I think you're absolutely right that that's just fundamentally missing from from the statement. Yeah, and as we read through some of these, uh, there's going to be a mixture. We're going to read some of the acronyms again, but then some of the articles of the faith below, and. Um, well, one of the questions I had for you was, I want to get a more clear understanding of whether or not they actually believe that they are sort of inherently good. Um, 
I, I'd like article two says that we affirm that because of the fall of Adam, every person inherits a nature and environment inclined towards sin. So it's almost like they, they want to recognize that, yeah, we're, we are born in the line of Adam and that's, there's something going on there. But again, there, here's a statement that we can affirm, but not in the same way, right? We, right. we believe that we are inclined towards sin and only sin, right? Um, so it, all, it sounds almost like something a Calvinist would say, but we have to ask further questions. We obviously don't mean the same thing. Uh, we believe that we, our hearts are inclined towards sin, um, and we will only ever sin until those inclinations are actually changed. And the, the, the provisionist seems to claim that inclined towards sin simply means that we will eventually sin. Because remember, they don't believe that you're born guilty of Adam's sin. You're born an innocent person. And then, but they're forced to admit, because everybody has sinned, right? Right. That we will all eventually, at some point, sin, which is going to bring up an important point in a minute here. But but this is also important because it's not that we're always sinning, even after we sin the, the quote-unquote first time, whenever that is, that magical time, point in time. Right. But it's not that we're always sinning. Um, and th- this just supports the idea that, well, sin in this view just seems to be like, well, we mess up every now and then, right? Instead of it being something that is is uh, always resulting in sin, it's just, well, we're inherently good and sometimes we mess up. So I just would like a clear, I don't know if you've heard them say it or if you've seen a reference that are we born with an actual sinful nature and what does that really mean? Yeah, I, well, I, you know, I think a lot of this depends on on who you talk to that's a, that's a provisionist. <laughs> that too, yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I think some will say, yeah, you have, an, you have a, a, a fallen nature, but they're not exactly clear on what that means. And you have other ones that, that seem to think, well, um, it, it really that that inclination like like I have an I, I have an inclination I love Pepsi, <laughs> like I love I love Pepsi. But you know when I when I hit my late thirties and I realized my my body can't metabolize it very well and I started to get a little bit of a dad bod, right? And I was like, well, this, I I can't keep going this route. You know, I gave up sugar, um, uh-huh. because well because from our side I, I had a <laughs> I had a greater desire, uh, right, to, right. To, to be yeah. healthy. But but like but. You know, my question is, okay, but I, I have I have all kinds of inclinations that, that I can overcome. So, uh-huh. so you know, even if I'm inclined towards sin, surely, I mean, at least there's hypothetical perfectionism. Right, right. right. Like, this like, is the, like it, should, the exact next point that I was going to get into. Yeah, but, but so, so, I mean, that seems to be possible because um, it doesn't, it doesn't seem by, by, um, by their statement of faith or what I've heard before, that there that there is something um, irreparably dead about your nature, right? They, they they very, very strongly want to downplay the death uh, motif in, in the New Testament. This is why they say, well, you know, dead in sin and trespasses, it doesn't mean dead like you're a dead corpse, like, uh, you know, Ezekiel 31 uh, describes. Uh-huh. It, it means dead like, like it, it, because it's a parable. Uh, it's like the prodigal son where the son was, de- quote unquote, dead to the father. The son wasn't actually dead. Um, and so they <laughs> want to rely on, on but they want to rely on those types of, of parables. But in doing so, it really does seem to, to for them to think that, well, deadness is kind of a it's it's almost like a positional thing rather than uh, rather than a nature thing. Yeah. And it, it I've noticed this. This is another thing I spent. um several episodes, not exclusively, but throughout those episodes I, in my podcast, 
really trying to explain that uh, spiritual, you can't just conflate physical death and spiritual death, right? Physical death means no physical activity. So you've got physical activity versus no activity at all. That's spiritual death is not spiritual activity versus no spiritual activity at all. When you're talking about spiritual life and spiritual death, it's all activity. It's just now shifted from spiritually bad stuff to spiritually good stuff. And that's a very important key to understanding that a lot of Calvinists talk about how you're dead in sin. And um, I, I've heard, you know, the, 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 the non-Calvinists will say, well, you're, you're, you fell in the hole and you need somebody to help you out or whatever. And the Calvinists will come on and say, no, 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 you're dead at the bottom of the hole. You need to be resurrected and carried out. Um, and, and, but if they don't properly explain that you're not actually, I don't really like that example because you're not dead at the bottom of the hole. You're, 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 you're sinning. You're actively like, like even the demons, they're spiritually dead, but they're very active. It's just right. all bad stuff. Right. So you're at the bottom of the hole, but, but that's because you jumped in, you wanted to jump in, and now you're loving life, right? Yeah, you keep digging. You keep digging, yeah. 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 I, I, I think that I think that's absolutely that's absolutely right. And that is, that is a problem with, with this system. Um, <clears throat> again, because I, I well, as you pointed out, just it just it just starts off within within the wrong within the wrong context, right? Because I, I think, you know, one thing that we will see throughout this entire thing and we start talking about freedom is that um, while, while they love to say, well, you know, Calvinists, you isogete the passage, you come, you come with your, your, your system and you oppose it on the text, which is just, I mean, in, anyone who's, who's read any actual reform theology, uh, and systematics and exegetical commentary, I mean, that's just, that's just nonsense. But, uh, but yeah. from here, it, they, they come to these, the passages with these ideas of, they're all, they're almost these like enlightenment humanistic ideas where, where, you know, we, we are, we are fundamentally, you know, good, good by nature. Um, you know, the, the babies are born innocent and good. Um, and, and, you know, God, God would somehow be like, you know, unjust if he, if he judged us, if, if we hadn't committed like a, like a, like a, you know, a, a, some type of immoral, personally immoral action, um, you know, which, which, you know, a lot of us are going to come and we're going to say, well, I mean, if you look at Romans, it was by, it was by the actions of one man that we were made sinners. That, that is a passive, uh, you exactly. know, passive heiress, right? So that, I mean, that, that is a, that is a completed action in the past of a passive sense, um, so again, it's just, it's, they're, they're coming, they're not drawing these things from the text. They're coming to the text with these certain, with these certain assumptions. Yeah. And since we moved on to, you know, the idea of imputed, uh, guilt or, or article two, uh, goes on to say that we deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or, uh, or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. Right. So they're clearly teaching that man is born innocent in the eyes of God and is not guilty until they personally themselves sin. But, you know, we can start asking questions. Why do? Why are the innocent people dying and suffering? Is God just in allowing those things? I think those are sort of mainstream things. But I want to get to how this actually, in my opinion, sort of threatens the gospel. Right. Because if you deny the imputed guilt of Adam, how can you then turn around and accept the imputed righteousness of Christ? That's right. Um and so if their entire argument is that it would be unjust for God to impute Adam's sin to one of his children or all of his children, then would it not follow that God would be unjust for imputing our sin? Like it's double imputation, right? It's not just That's right. imputing Christ's righteousness to us, but God is imputing our sin to Christ. And they affirm, uh, as far as I can tell, I think I remember reading in the statement, they affirm 
substitutionary atonement. Right. So you want the good, you want the fun stuff, but you don't want the not the not fun stuff. You want God to be perfectly okay in in imputing your sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to you. Imputation's fine there, but for some for some reason, it makes a horrible unjust view if you believe that God has uh, imputed Adam's guilt to all of his children. That's right. That's right. So. Which, which is, a, I mean, that's a major problem. I, I think here also, I mean, I, I don't want to harp too much on the on the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian accusations, um, but I, I think here uh, we see one of the major components of why this view has been so, has, has come under fire. I mean, and th- this isn't a Calvinist boogeyman thing, like, like Flowers likes to say. I mean, you, <laughs> you've had Calvinists, you've had Arminians, uh, uh-huh. you know, you've had Lutherans all come out, and, and all of them are like, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's just downright Pelagianism or that's semi-Pelagian, <laughs> right? I mean, everyone gets... And this, this is one of the main areas, right? So one, right. one of the main re- areas that we get to is, well, because it, it says that, that humans are born innocent, right? We, we, we are born by nature innocent and we are, not, um, we are not guilty in Adam, right? So this hypothetical perfectionism uh, is, is at least logically possible. Right. Right? Because, um, and... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that the the way the way around that um, that that you know some some positions have taken um, is like like Roman Catholicism, for example, is that well, well, God still acts. The the other you know the other side of the coin is that God to avoid Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism is that God has to act directly and immediately first on the person. Right, and and this is going to be an important distinction because there, there we'll get to this one. I don't want to skip too far ahead, uh-huh. um, but the, but God has to work directly and immediately on the person by His grace to overcome uh, original sin or, or or under Calvinism total depravity or anything you know something along those lines, right? If you deny if you deny both of those, right? If you deny original sin and the fallen if you know our fallen nature, and you deny the necessity of God acting first. Uh, to 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 remove the stain and corruption of original sin, to remove the barriers, all that kind of stuff, act, acting directly and, and immediately by the spirit on, on on the constitution of the person, right? That just is some form of uh, sim plagiarism at best, or downright plagiarism at worst. And I, and I've asked provisionists this many times, like, can can you can you describe a substantive difference between your view and and, and semi plagiarism? And they right. just can't. Yeah, I haven't heard one yet. Uh, granted, I don't listen to every single episode of latent flowers but I, I haven't heard one yet um and and i really like this uh, argument you mentioned the idea of hypothetical perfection um it, i've i've always wondered if free will is true why has there never been a sinless human um and again their article two says every person who is capable of moral action will sin um and i actually asked this question of Leighton on one of his episodes a lot of times at the end he asks uh, he posts the comment questions and whatnot on youtube and I asked him, if free will is true, why has there never been a sinless human? And he basically accused me of not understanding his view of free will. And he said it's, you know, he's the king of analogies. Right. He said it's basically like if you have a, a football player, a field goal kicker, um, who's the best field goal kicker ever, even the best one eventually will miss. But you, you have to think about what this, what this means. Uh, and I made this point in my very first episode. God giving you free will, therefore, is ensuring that eventually you will fail is basically what he just said with that analogy. That's right. And I'm just wondering, is, is it really such a good thing to begin with? I mean, 
if if free will ensures that I will fail, then I'd actually rather not have it. I'd just rather be loving God for all eternity. <laughs> you right, know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, and and the analogy just failed. I mean, I, we, I don't want to get too much into free will yet. We're going to get into that. But the, but the, the analogy just fails. Right, because yeah. because a kicker will miss because they get tired and worn out, and uh, you know there's there's wind conditions, or they just want to give up, you know whatever whatever it is, right? Free will. E, e, there there there's none of those kind of tiring conditions that that goes well, no, upon, and... that goes upon a capacity, right? So so it, yeah. it it could just be the case that someone could you know let let's say let's say someone hits the age the age of the age of accountability they only have really one morally responsible free choice. They make a good one. So they haven't had any personal guilt. They haven't had any personal sin. They're not sin in Adam, right? The, right. Then what are they repenting? What, how is repentance and grace necessary for salvation? How is Christ necessary for salvation in that case, right? Someone, so, uh, someone, someone makes only one and only one morally free choice. They make the good one. Um, you know, they, they, they choose the right. What are they being saved from in that case? Right. Because this view doesn't have, um, it doesn't, it doesn't have original sin. And so, so the question becomes, well, you can't say that the atonement of Christ then is a necessary condition for salvation because that person doesn't need salvation. Right. Yeah. And, and it, it also doubles down. I mean, if they're going to, I mentioned earlier, started this all out by saying that their view of sin makes it seem like it's just accidental and almost like a victim mentality, like, oops, it happened. But it comes, guys, from your your spokesperson, your, your foremost spokesperson, Leighton Flowers, with analogies right. like field goal kickers missing, like, oops, he missed. The, the actual analogy should be the field goal kicker wanted to see what it felt like to miss, so he intentionally missed, you know, kicked it wide right or whatever. And that, once again, addresses the the big, huge difference we have on the view of sin itself. That's right. So let me go through and try to find out where I left off here. Well, I think think the next Uh, one, Article 3, is the Atonement of Christ, uh, which is interesting. uh This one, this is one I always thought is interesting, right? Because... um, Again, provisionism seems to, in a lot of ways, right, they, they have this statement of faith, but then it's kind of a broad tent, right? So, so yeah. you, you, you know, on, on, uh, on provisionist perspective, literally on provisionist perspective, right, you, you, you have, as, as far as I understand, I could be wrong, but if I remember right, I'm pretty sure one of them denies <laughs> penal substitutionary atonement. I wouldn't um, doubt it. What's that? I said I wouldn't doubt it. It's uh, right. it's like it's the it's the all you can eat non Calvinist buffet. As long as it's not Calvinism, you can join the club type of thing, right? Right, and and, and you know you have you have you have you have people like Warren McGrew, uh, you know you have you have open theists who are on there, um, you know you have all you have all these all these people who who deny substitutionary penal atonement, right? So, um, yeah, and they and you know they're fine. You know, just brings them on the show. <laughs> And and you guys got to go read this statement of faith. We're looking at Article 3. It's one sentence, and then it's like three times as much information right after that. And it's saying we deny that the atonement results and blah, blah, blah. It's deny Calvinism, deny Calvinism. Like every article in their statement of faith is is, uh, uh, finalized by a denial. of. It's like 
their denial of Calvinism is more descriptive of their position than actually them just saying it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And, and this is why I said, I mean, they, they largely just do theology by, by negation. I mean, this is why in, in my debates in, in, in doing this, I've started to say, look, I, the topic of debate is not going to be anything where I'm affirming Calvinism, right? Because all that's going to do is it's just going to turn into a, you know, we, we're just going to do the anti-Calvinist shtick, right? So, so I've started to say like my debate with Warren McGrew, I have a, a debate coming up uh, with AK Robertson. I have another one coming up with, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the name, uh, I, you know, another, but I, but I basically said uh-huh. like I, the, the topic isn't going to be like told depravity. Or something like, right? The topic needs to be: this is what you affirm, and and you're going to take the positive position because I'm just not going to do the the, the theology by negation anymore. Uh, because yeah, it's, just it's, not, a, it's not, not profitable. It's not useful. And and I'm not saying that I don't. I'm not like some people who would fault uh, like somebody like Leighton Flowers for having a anti-Calvinist exclusive sort of um, uh, YouTube channel. I, I think that that's that's fine. But but when you don't spend much time, and I point this out constantly, most of my episodes, ironically, are actually responses to Leighton. Um, but what I point out all the time is he's so on the attack that he rarely takes the time to 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 establish his own position. It's just all you know. If I can show, it's basically if I can show Calvinism to be wrong somehow, then mine is right, no matter what I actually believe. That's right. And and when we get through these articles, um, I'm I'm going to point that out that this. This statement of faith does that exact very thing um, in a way that I think I think verges on on the unethical. So so we'll, we'll get there when we go through. Okay. But but I think you can actually see that in this statement of faith um, at, where where it, where it plays fast and loose and basically equates denial of Calvinism with the affirmation of provisionism. Um, so we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll get there. Uh, All right. Um... So yes, yeah, so Article Three, the Atonement of Christ. Right? What, what, I mean, what's interesting is in in the in the little acronym, it just says vicarious atonement provides a way for anyone to be saved by Christ's blood. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, as a Calvinist, like I don't dispute that. Right. Uh, right. It, it, you know, it, anyone anyone can be saved. Right. Had God right. had God ordained it and died for them, right? There's there's nothing intrinsic, and this is what unconditional election is is about. Limit atonement is about, right? It's 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 it, 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 no one no one is better or worse, right? It's not it's right. not that it only comes to the powerful, it's not that it only comes to the rich, not that it only comes to the beautiful, like it it can come to to any 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 and all, um, but that doesn't mean that that's who Christ uh, who Christ was the penal substitute for and, and forgave. Yeah, and the other thing, um, I was trying to find it in my notes, but right along those lines is um, they say uh, the gospel, I think it's at the top of the first start, it says uh, the, the gospel is in keeping with God's desire for every person to be saved. Then they talk about the atonement, which basically makes it possible for everybody to be saved. And they also affirm, I can't remember where I read it in there, but they affirm that the only way to be saved is by the gospel and by faith in Christ. But what I've never understood how is the consistency behind trying to say that God actually desires the salvation of everyone when billions of people throughout history have lived and died uh, not hearing that only way to be saved gospel. That's right. And I've never heard them give an answer on what what happens. Uh, I, I don't think they would say that people who don't hear the gospel are just saved. Their, their statement of faith doesn't allow for that. Um but it sort of seems like a contradiction. You're going to say God wants everybody to be saved, but he, it, like, I guess it boils down to where's his effort. I mean, 
why you know he could send everybody their own angel or this or that um where's the effort on god's part reflected in that yeah and, and i think this comes up so you're you're referring to the first sentence of uh, of the next article right that that god's generous decision to provide salvation for any person uh right uh, oh no maybe that wasn't it um so yeah but this this idea that, that god that god you know is God desires every single person to be saved, and, and if if Jesus only came and took the place of uh, of the elect or, or of his people, somehow that would make God unloving or whatever it is. I I think you're rightly pointing out. Well, I mean, if 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 God if God was if God if God was that type of uh, had that type of intention, right? He had that type of will. Because remember, they deny the two wills view. They deny that God can have. Uh, you know, a, kind of the secret hidden will, his ultimate purposes of, of what are about and his right. revealed moral will. Right. Well, well, at that case, like, I mean, we can we can pull a latent and we can we can think of, you know, all kinds of analogies. And I could say, OK, well, you know, I I, I desire I, I really, really want my son to live as long as he possibly can and not die. And because I love him so much, I I would literally do anything to make that happen, right? If I if I if I had the power to send angels to protect him throughout his entire life, I would do that. Um, in, right. in the cases where he was making bad decisions or he was making whatever, you know, and, and I and you could send angels in ways that, uh, you know, if I can think of it, I'm sure God can think of it. You know, you could send angels in ways that it wouldn't violate the person's freedom because they wouldn't even know that an angel was protecting him, right? All these kinds of things, right? God, yeah, it's like, if, if that if that's really his 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 will, and he only has one will, he could have done all that. But what we actually see in Scripture is God actually sometimes works very 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 hard <laughs> to keep people from being saved, um, and and, and, and it just, he works at cross purposes against himself, and it just becomes inexplicable why that would be the case. And, they, and remember, because they deny the two wills, they can't appeal to a second will. They can't say, oh well. Um, it's because God has this greater will uh, of his holiness or his glory or, 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 or whatever it is, right? So you say, okay, well, you know, why did he speak in parables so that people wouldn't repent and believe, right? If, if you know, even on, the, on their view, we run a reductio ad absurdum. If Jesus didn't do that, those people would have repented and believed on their view. Uh-huh. Right. So yeah. the, the only the only thing that's keeping those people from repenting and believing is Jesus directly acting to prevent it. Same thing with Pharaoh, I would assume. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, same same thing all over the place. Their typical rejoinder is is just is, is to do a two quake. Right. It's, it's to say, oh, well, you know, well, well, on Calvinism, right, because they do They do everything by 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 negative. Right, right. Well, on Calvinism, if they're already totally depraved, then why did why did God have to harden them? Right. Which we have an right. answer for. Right. We, right. we have we have two wills. We have nature. We have secondary causation. We have all we have all kinds of things. We have the providence bringing about their damnation by, by that. We don't deny judicial hardening. Right. It's not the same thing as total depravity, but we don't we don't deny it. Right. All that kind of stuff. But we can we can have all that because we can we can hold in tension the two wills of God. They simply have no recourse to answer that. Yeah. And just to clear it really quickly, it's not like we believe two wills as, as if it's like he's a schizophrenic. Right. It's right. not like yeah. we're talking about the revealed will and his commands. Right. Um, God is pleased with this and he is not pleased with that over against what he is willing to occur, right? That's, that's, you, you, you can't make sense out of the Bible. I'm sorry, without recognizing those two things. Uh, you have the case of Pharaoh, you have the crucifixion, you have Joseph's brothers, you have all the mainstream things that Calvinists bring up and rightly so. And the point is simple. Um, God can will for something to occur that is a violation of his revealed will. I mean, how much more clear can you get than 
command Pharaoh to let the people go, but I'll harden his heart so that he won't. That's right. That's not a contradiction, but I would also ask, which is it? Does he want Pharaoh to let the people go in terms of the course of time and what is coming to occur or not? And obviously, uh, the answer is not, because there's 101 million different ways he could have gotten his people out of Egypt without destroying Pharaoh. He could have teleported them out. He could have wiped out Pharaoh. You know, why, why send plagues and, and, and tickle this, tickle that, and provoke him into blah, blah, blah. There's 101 million different ways that God could have, if he didn't want to destroy Pharaoh, not destroy him. And yet we have Romans 9 saying, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power and my name throughout the whole earth and all these things. And that's like, you just have to recognize it's, it's not a contradiction to just say God can determine that something occur that is a violation of his commands. That's right. Because, by the way, he has a good purpose in it, which is what we would always point out. That's absolutely right. Um, uh, okay, so so uh, Article 4, the, the grace of God. Uh-huh. Um, what were your thoughts on that? Let's see here. We affirm that grace is a generous decision to provide salvation for any person by taking all of the initiative in providing atonement. Uh, well, I would just reiterate my point. I actually didn't make uh, points on that article, but it summarized in uh, the eye of provide. I made a note on that. The eye of provide stands for illuminating grace, and it provides clearly revealed truth so that all can know and respond in faith. But notice what I just pointed out. Not everybody hears the gospel. So not all actually can know the gospel and respond in faith to the gospel because not everybody hears it. So it, it sounds nice to say that God is just giving grace to everybody, but even they would be, you know, Leighton wants to say, oh, but it is grace. The preaching of the gospel, that is the grace. But if not everybody hears the gospel, then how can you say he's giving, being gracious to everybody? I've never heard an answer to that. Right. And, and I think it also, it, it also confuses com- like common grace with saving grace, right? Com- you know, um, it, it basically, it, it turns, rather than saying the Holy Spirit is, and, th- and this is that second point of, you know, of plagianism, right? It, it's saying uh-huh. that, um, right, because plagiarism is say, well, the, the natural man by his natural faculty can believe unaided by the Holy Spirit. And by the unaided, it means the Holy Spirit doesn't have to work directly on the individual so that they are even able to believe, whether that's, you know, removing the stain of sin, illuminating the the conscience in the mind, right, in an Arminian scheme, or some type of irresistible grace on a Calvinist scheme, right? All of those are are within the the Augustinian, the the semi-Augustinian camp, because... All of those have the Holy Spirit acting di- graciously and directly upon the the person to bring them to faith. Whether again, you know, you're an Armenian or Wesley, and you say that's irresistible, or you say that's right. irresistible, or Calvin, you say it's irresistible. Whatever it is, the point is, is that in order to believe, the, the Spirit has to work immediately and directly upon the individual itself. Right. Right. This view and the reason why Calvinists and Arminians and Lutherans and Catholic, I mean, everyone, everyone who interacts with this says, well, you know, I mean, he's getting into, into, into semi, you know, into semi-Pelagianism. It's not a Calvinist <laughs> boogeyman is because, as we saw before, they, they deny the, the, the stain of original sin. They deny original sin. They deny that we are all dead and fallen in Adam. But they also here deny that uh, that it takes a special and direct gracious working of the Holy Spirit. And so grace is moved into like this, almost this common grace perspective where the grace that's given just is the proclamation of the gospel. 
right? There, there's nothing beyond right, right. that working upon the individual. It's just the, the the proclamation of the gospel that does it. The Holy Spirit isn't going, you know, uh, isn't going ahead of the gospel um, and doing his work, uh, you know, till, tilling the soil um, and, and making the word come back profitable. Yeah, and, and I did uh, two major episodes on this very idea of the difference between natural ability and moral ability. The idea, uh, when we say that fallen man is unable to believe the gospel, we're not saying that their brain isn't functioning to understand the propositions. What we're saying is that because they hate God, they don't want anything to do with it. They, they So their inability is of a moral nature. It's like if I say, well, I can't eat that. Uh, it doesn't mean I can't put it in my mouth. It just means I find it disgusting. Um, it, it's like if I say I can't harm my child or I can't forgive somebody, there's a disposition in place, right? Because I hate somebody, I can't forgive them. Because Joseph's brothers hated him, they could not speak peaceably to him. Because fallen man hates God, they cannot respond positively, keyword. They cannot respond positively. They cannot accept and believe the gospel. They reject it. It's, it's a, and so it's not like they're being held back. That's right. Um, and so this is what you're pointing at, is that it requires uh, an actual gracious work of God on the heart that is making a change. And I just want to add on to this, that grace, this is why, this is, a, this is an important point. Grace for Calvinists is, is effectual. It's representing a disposition of God towards a person, we would say his elect, and it is, you know, love and grace both are resulting in salvation. It's, it's not failing. We, we read... Um, nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God, right? God, in love, he predestined us, and he works all things. In love, because of the great love with which, with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. God's love for his people is resulting in every step along the way. It is, it is, it's not failing, in other words. And as you pointed out earlier, I would just once again ask, if, if you're going to say God loves everybody— Where's that effort? Your love for your child results in your action on their behalf, right? That's right. And 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 so where is the action of God with regards to, you want to say, every single person who's ever lived, when billions of people who have lived and died never hearing the gospel. Um, so it's just, a, it's very contradictory for them to um, deny that salvation is possible apart from faith in the gospel and say that grace is provided to everybody so that all can know and respond, but then how do you address the reality that not everybody hears that that gospel? Yeah, so. yeah, I, I think that's uh, that, that's that's very very well stated, very well stated. Uh, okay, so uh, Article Five: uh, the regeneration of the sinner. Uh, right, we we affirm that any person who responds to the gospel with repentance and faith is born again through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So they're, 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 they're clearly putting regeneration post uh, repentance and faith and, and that the, right. the Holy Spirit is working as a response to our response to the gospel, right? He is, a, he is then a new creation. It's, I, I added the then, but that, that's the intent of it, is he is, a, he is a new creation in Christ and enters at that moment, he believes, into eternal life. Um, they deny, again, this is the anti-Calvinist statement, we deny that any person is regenerated prior to or apart from hearing and responding to the gospel. Yeah, and one of my big questions for the provisionists would be, because it's not clear in the statement of faith, what what in their view does it mean for God to change our heart, to regenerate us? Yes. Um, you just read the article, and but no explanation is giving of exactly what a new heart entails. And I would just like to simply ask, 
Um, latent flowers like to stay, well, just because someone's an addict doesn't mean they can't recognize they're an addict and seek help and blah, blah, blah. Um, if, if I can, uh, apart from a God changing my heart, if I can change my own heart and my dispositions toward my own sin and start hating my own sin and start loving God on my own, right, um, then what is the point, what is God changing in my heart if I've already changed my own heart? I, I have never really understood that. And and one of the things that Leighton likes to say a lot is, like I said, the whole addict thing. But I think that they are they're they're looking out at reality, and 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 again, they're making analogies and they're saying things, and they're and they're falsely assuming that outward, uh, potentially false repentance. They're just assuming that that is actual repentance. But there's a huge difference between somebody. Um, seeking help for their addiction for selfish reasons, like because it's destroying their life or the lives of their friends and family. To us, those seem like good things, right? But if they're not doing it with God as their focus, then they're still sinning, right? Whatever is done without faith is sin. And and anyways, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think I think that's I think that's that's absolutely correct. And and, and this is this is where I I commonly. I, you know, I, I ask a lot of provisions these questions, these same type of questions, and and again, the the answers are are um, muddled to say to say the least. And and, and you know, the, the, this is this is where the analogy of the prodigal son will come up, and it was as if he was dead, but it's not actually dead, and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, but <laughs> the father the father is saying. Uh, that that you know this son of mine it was it was like he was dead to me but he wasn't uh-huh. actually dead to him um uh-huh. it, 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 and the fa- the father continued to long for the son it was you know it wasn't it wasn't that he was actually dead so what what so then my question is okay so then i don't actually need a new heart right i'm not i'm not actually it's it's like i need a new heart but i don't actually need it it's like right. i need a new nature right if i if i'm not right. dead then I don't need a new nature. Right. If if my heart is it's like I have a heart of stone, right? And here we're here we're you know we're going analogies on analogies because I don't think my 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 physical heart is actually made of graphite, right? So it it, right. it is already analogy saying saying that it's completely it's completely lifeless and dead and uh, and, and and immovable and and all that kind of stuff, right? But it, but if but if but if you're kind of doubling down on the analogy, right? It's a, it's an analogy within an, like it's almost like this weird inception thing. Right, so they're gonna say, well, you, well, you're not, you're clearly not actually dead. Right, it's like you're dead. Okay. Well, then, well, then, you know, I, I don't, I don't need an, I don't need a live heart. Then I just need, I, I need something that's like a live heart. But apparently, I already have that. Right. Yeah. So why, why do I need a new heart if I'm already doing the things, repenting of sin or recogn- uh You know, again, he wants to say, recognize that you're a sinner. Um, a lot of fallen sinners who hate God can recognize that they're sinners, right? That doesn't mean it's true repentance. And that's what I was getting at earlier. But why do you need that change of heart if you're just inherently able to, again, stop loving sin and start loving God without uh, God making that change? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Article 6, Election Unto Salvation. Um, that's a fun one. Yeah, this is a, this is a fun. One. We we affirm in ref, uh, we affirm that in reference to salvation, election speaks of God's eternal, gracious, and certain plan in Christ. This is the fun part: to have a people who are His by repentance of faith. Yeah. 
this to me is one of the most glaring like this this is where i get you know into debate uh this was my 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 debate on romans 9 in corporate election um uh and this is where i debate you know the provisionist guys on, on ephesian ones and so forth because exegetically this is just impossible to take right so th- this is just when, when you read ephesians 1 right the, mm-hmm. the 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 direct object of the verb to choose is the personal pronoun uh, us right right the individuals are the object of of the choosing right the it, it is the people the persons you know individually and and collectively that are the object of uh, of election right this, this is what this is while while it says uh you know for christ to have a certain people if you actually look at the object of the verb right so we affirm that in reference to salvation election speaks of god eternal gracious and certain plan in christ <laughs> right so right. so this one it, christ got election isn't god electing people or persons right it's god electing and 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 kind of drafting up the plan right he predestines that there will be a people in Christ. Yes. Right. But he doesn't determine who gets in. That's right. I pointed out in, in my episode, I was I did one on corporate election where I said, you know, it's not trying to mock anything at all. I actually think it's a pretty good analogy. Uh, you open up a car wash and you, you, you have the best car wash ever and you're predestining that whatever cars go through are going to be made perfectly clean. But you're not choosing which cars go through. That's right. Right. So that would be a, a brief summary of, of the of the whole thing. But as you pointed out, you can't get that out of Ephesians 1 if you follow the pronouns. Right. If you follow the pronouns and you recognize the tenses of, of first, God is choosing people before the foundation of the world and he's predestining them. Right. To be to adoption. And, 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 and this is this is what I wanted to bring out. Like the most common thing I hear is that Calvinists are wrong about Ephesians 1 because it doesn't say that he chose us to be in him. So they play the, I need to see it word for word game, right? Right. But the verse, the, the same verse says that we would be holy and blameless, which only occurs in Christ, in time. So it doesn't word for word say that he chose us to be in him, but it's very clearly there. And the, the very next verse says he predestined us for adoption, which again is only possible in time in, in Christ. Um, so I... And, and it's funny because after saying that, they're then going to take a position that their, their, their corporate election view is, is found nowhere word for word in the entire passage. And that is that God chose that those who believe would be holy and blameless, right? It doesn't say that either. <laughs> so I just think it's a big double standard there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would, I would go back and say, I mean, the grammar uh, of Ephesians 1-4, right? Just as he chose us in him— Right, they're 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 going to want to skip the, the that and then the the parenthetical before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Right, they're going to say, well, he chose that we would be holy and blameless in him, and then whoever includes themselves therein. Yeah. Right. So they, I mean, they just destroy the syntax of the verb. I mean, I pointed this out so many. I, I you know, I've gotten blue in the face pointing out, and, and you know, it's I'm not trying to make an appeal to authority, but it's interesting that. You know, I, I, I'm not aware of, and I've read a lot of, uh, of commentaries and a lot of articles and everything on Ephesians 1. I'm not aware of a single one, a single mm-hmm. academic, exegetical, you know, any of the major commentaries 
that that argues for the position that that they argue for. Not not one because it's just if 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 you if you're familiar with the Greek, it's just exegetically impossible to read. You it can't get it. You yeah. cannot get it. Um, and, and, and so there's that. And then, and then you say, okay, well, well, it's, it's the, in him, in him. Well, well, who's in him? It's people who already believe, right? Well, no, it's (laughs) that you have to read, you have to read where, where, where's, what's the temporal clause, right? The, the temporal clause (laughs) from, you know, from, uh, from, uh, before the foundation of the world. Right. Right? So we were chosen in him. When did the choosing take place before the foundation of the world? Right. Right, so and it, that's, it, it cannot that's where be a they choice, translate like a, like a post hoc choice after someone believes in this life, because the choice already happened before the foundation of the world. Right, and that's where they transfer this into the plan was chosen. That's right, not not a person. And and again, they want to play that word for word game. It doesn't say God chose a plan in Christ. It says he chose. He is addressing believers. He says he chose us. And the whole point of Paul throughout the entire passage there in Ephesians one. It's, it's explaining to Christians, yes, he's addressing Christians, but he's explaining to them why they are saved, why they are believing. And if you start at the beginning and go through, right, it's all what God does. He chooses, he predestines, and he works it all. It's, 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 it's clear. It's word for word. It's Calvinism word for word in a certain sense. I like to, I like to say it that way because it just it, it, it's one of the clearest passages in the entire Bible. And I remember listening to one of your episodes, and you said that— per, uh, corporate election came along fairly recently. Is that right? Yeah, it came along. It, it was actually. Um, I, uh, I, it's been a while now since I've done it. It was. It was. There, there was. Uh, a, 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 I think it was a German uh, scholar in the twenties or thirties. I think I, I, I can find the notes on it. But really, uh, uh, Bart is the one who took who took his thought and kind of uh, ramped it up and made it popular. And then Herschel Hobbes, who was really the person that the provisionists looked to. You know, Herschel Hobbes basically sat through a lecture by Bart, and then lo and behold, corporate election, you know, came to the United States, <laughs> came to the SBC um, that, that way. And, and this, this was really in like the 60s, I think, that this happened. Wow. Um, and so, like, nobody holds this view. Um, you, know, you, have, you have minority of kind of neo-Orthodox Bartians uh, in, in kind of continental views. And then, you know, SBC provisionists. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And it shows that that that's what you get. This is I want people to realize this is what you get. Corporate election, these types of things. This is what you get when you're you're really trying hard <laughs> to, to get out of what is so clearly being said. It, it's it has to be concocted. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why I reviewed uh, in my episode on corporate election uh, some very interesting statements by Layton. And I don't know if this would be all provisious or not, but he said, number one, you can't choose. He was referring to being chosen before the foundation of the world. He said, you can't choose something that doesn't exist. And therefore, that's why it's a plan. So he's not choosing people because the people don't yet exist. But that destroys election from cover to cover right. because God is constantly choosing people uh, who, who don't yet exist. Right. That's he's, right. right. God can certainly choose, you know, when he formulates his plan. He can choose people who don't yet exist because he's the creator of them. That's right. Right. And and so you could go on and on about a corporate election. But yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, he 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 elected, you know, Isaac over Ishmael be, be, right. before. I mean, before Ishmael was born. I mean, that's 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 what, like a decade, almost a decade and a half before Isaac was born. Um, right. right. It's definitely before. But but also, I mean, this just this one of my criticisms of that is that just I don't know how that's not open theism. 
Um, yeah. I, I don't know. I, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's saying basically God can't, God can't know that, you know, Tyler Vela would exist prior to creation because I don't exist yet. Yeah. And it's funny you bring up open theism because that's actually the only view that would, uh, not speaking to the truth or falsity of corporate election, but that's the only view that would consistently allow for it. Right. right. Oh, uh, not God, because I pointed out in my episode also that, uh, ironically, corporate election can sound great until you, you bring the foreknowledge of God into the picture again. And so even when God chooses his plan, he's doing so knowing who will take advantage of that plan. And so when he executes that plan and creates that universe or whatever, blah, 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 in that way, he is actually still choosing and predestining particular people. So right. open theism is really the only way to escape that. Yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, the, the, the next one, so sovereignty of God. <laughs> uh, but, but one, well, one of, so, one of the things I, I want to point out is, you know, for anyone who's following, if, if they haven't noticed, <laughs> the PROVIDE acronym, by the way, is out the window, right? Uh, the, I, <laughs> it's one of those funny things where it's like, okay, well, let's have this really cool, we, you know, we, we kind of want to be like TULIP, so we want to have this cool acronym. <laughs> so we're going to do this. But like these points don't align, like when they actually start hashing these out, they don't actually align to the acronym. I always just always thought that was funny. Anyways, yeah, um, it's it's a little a little bit of a bait and switch. Uh, Article seven, so the sovereignty of God. Uh, yeah, we, we affirm God's eternal knowledge of and sovereignty over every person's salvation and, or or condemnation. We deny that God's sovereignty and knowledge require Him to cause a person's acceptance or rejectance uh, a rejection of faith in Christ. Yeah, that's very interesting wording. Right? Uh, very interesting wording. I want to jump on that first. Um, how, do I, how do I put this? I hear people like Leighton say that, um, number one, he says uh, God's knowledge, just because God foreknows something doesn't mean he caused it. His, his knowledge is not causative. Um, I don't think anybody's ever saying that God's knowledge is what is causative. What we're right. saying is that the reason God knows something is because he knows what he himself is going to cause in the future. That's what we're saying. Um, but this idea of requiring him to cause uh, this or that, um, people like to think that, that what Calvinists are saying is that God could choose to either be controlling somebody or not be controlling somebody. Um, but what we're actually saying from the start is that the only reason that you exist in the first place is because God is exerting power. He, he Number one, he created you, but number two, he keeps you in existence at all moments, your entire existence, right? Not okay. just your physical body, your entire sp spiritual, quote-unquote, body, your will, your emotions, your desires. So it's not as though if God wasn't exerting power over you, you'd be doing something else. If God wasn't exerting power over you, you wouldn't even exist. You wouldn't be doing anything at all. Um, and this opens up a whole other can of worms, but we just have to be careful the way that a lot of these things are phrased. Um talking about God's knowledge requires him to, to cause this or that. It doesn't require him. It's just God knows what he has committed to uh, executing in terms of his, his creation. Yeah. I mean, and this is where you get, you know, some of those, some of those really kind of silly objections that I think that I, I think they're somewhat revealing, right? I mean, I, I, have you heard like the rogue molecule joke that they have? Yeah. 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 Which, you know, I've always heard that and I'm like, look, I mean, what, what's funny is this comes from a group that that that's you know almost as a mantra is all means all and all is all that all means, right? It's it's Except almost like a, like when, a, that's one of the yeah. slogans. <laughs> and I want to be like, okay, I mean, it, it says that God upholds all things by the word of His power, right? 
does all may not mean all, right? right. Um, you know, so it, it's almost the sense I'm, I'm, you know, I want to say like if you're if you're mocking the idea that God upholds every molecule of creation such that um, there is no such thing as a rogue molecule, I'm just going to say, well, you're just you're you're mocking your Creator at that point. Yeah, it just absolutely yeah. is the case that nothing exists autonomously from God. Right. It's one of the clearest. And this is why I love uh, my big three verses are Hebrews 1, 3, you just quoted uh, Colossians 1, 17, God, in, thing, in God, all things consist. And uh, Acts 17, uh, 28, I believe. Uh, the whole point is they all mention creation in their context and they all mention living and moving and having our being and be- consisting in God. It's like if you're going to say if you're going to mock the idea of a rogue molecule, who or what's power then is is upholding the existence of that thing? And if you say it's something other than God, then you're you're a semi-deistic, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, again, not a scare term, just descriptive of your position that that is semi-deistic. <laughs> right. You're right. So. That, that that is this. You know, God God kind of set the initial pr- parameters, wound it up, and let it go, and you have all these things kind of existing indirectly, autonomously from God. I mean, that that just is you're not right. the scriptural view of of God who who holds all things together by by the you know the word of His power that. That in him uh, we live and move and have our being, right, to, to, to your and, point. And so. this is a good, real quick here, uh, you could do entire episodes on each of these things that we keep bringing up, but I want to point out the very important distinction um, that I, I have to say I wish more Calvinists would make. Some of them do, some of them don't. But when we're talking about God's control, quote-unquote, we're talking about his ultimate metaphysical relationship to what he's created, okay? We're talking about him as creator and sustainer, transcendent. That is distinguished from the way God interacts and takes part in that creation in time. Okay? So anytime you're going to look at something where God is appearing, quote-unquote, to not be in control, and you're going to think that that's somehow disproving Calvinism, the point is that God does not directly control things on the storyline level, right? He's not the one um, murdering with the knife. He's not the one doing the tempting. He's not blah, 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 blah. But the whole point is that none of those things, no matter how terrible you want to point at, could be occurring in the first place if God, as the transcendent sustainer of those things, was not exerting power. Right. That's a very important thing. Yeah. I mean, I I commonly point this out. You know, I I think the concern about the problem of evil, right? I I think there's good motives behind some of this, but it's just distorted, right? The the concern about the problem of evil, I think, is kind of behind a lot of this. And we're going to get to it in, in Article 8 in the... Uh, you know, and free will and all that kind of stuff. And there's this idea of, well, you know, that, that would somehow make God inappropriately tied to evil and we can't have that. And, you know, God, God can't be willing evil or it'd make him, you know, terrible. I mean, besides the fact that you have, you know, the Bible is just replete with places where, where God is, is not only willing evil actions, but he's actually, uh, he's actually determining and bringing them out. The crucifixion, right? The, the, the state sponsored deicide of the, of the second person of the Trinity is one of them. Um, where we're, right. we're expressly told uh, that that it was by the the determinative plan uh, and foreknowledge of of God that this happened that it was that it was what He had willed to take place right I mean no no one says that that makes God evil um, but it was probably yeah. you know arguably one of the most evil things to to ever happen um, 
and at the same time, one of the most glorious things that ever happened, right? They have, they have a really hard time understanding how it, how it can, how it can be both, right? This, this is why they say, oh, well, that means if you, you know, if, if God decreed that you sin, well, that means your sin is obeying in God. And so sin is therefore good. Well, no, I mean, that, that would mean you'd have to, you'd have to say that Pontius Pilate and Herod were obeying God and doing the right and good and, and honorable thing by, by crucifying Jesus Christ, right? Which is just if you if you hold their principles to, to, to the fire to be consistent, it's just it's just nonsense. But I, but I, but I think what they're what again, the noble intent behind it is to try to give a substantive answer to the problem of evil. right? Yeah. But the thing that I typically point out, right because they're they're gonna think, well, the the free will defense is a good defense, right? They're gonna say, oh well, there has to be this evil because you you, you know if God has has a sufficiently free creature, they're gonna have the opportunity to good, do good or bad. We'll get to that here in a second. Mm-hmm. But I commonly point out, uh, and 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 this isn't just me. There there are, there are numerous papers on this. There's all you know. There's there's, there's lots. Of this. this is not new with me. That. God could prevent, right, the, the, in, in the philosophy of action, which is what, the, what, what free will is under, there's a common distinction made between, act, you know, intent and outcome, right? I could freely choose to stab someone. That doesn't mean that it guarantees the outcome of someone being stabbed, Right. Okay. So, so my free will is maintained by my choice of an of an action. Right. Even even on even on libertarian views. Uh-huh. But it doesn't mean that it guarantees the outcome. So the outcome. I mean, you could have all kinds of things where, where, where God, if someone with evil intent decides to 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 strike someone with a knife or a club or shoot a bullet or something, and God simply withdraws his sustaining of the solidity of the knife, for example, such that it turns into water. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I had just actually the other day heard you make that. Um, I can't remember if it was an episode or a debate you did, but it, I, I had never thought of that before. And it's like, there's so many angles that free will uh, is falsely assuming things. And and that's that's something I'd never even thought of. And it's like, yeah, every time God can allow them to to act freely, right? Like you just said, but then he could deter the, the outcome and and have everybody still living happily ever after. So it, it 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 doesn't achieve what free will thinks it's achieving with these sorts of things, which we're, we're about to get into that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I wanted one more quick thing because I'm about to do an episode on God as the author of sin or not, quote you know, quote unquote, is right. God the author of sin. Um, one of the most important, I, I think this is the the answer. If you want to say there's an answer to the problem of evil, I think it's this, uh, and that is you ask what is sin, what is evil? It's it's disobedience to the law of God. Okay. Sin is not something that has ontological existence. It wasn't created by God or by us, right? So when we sin, we're not creating sin, which is interesting because people like Leighton Flowers actually are on record as saying that we create our choices out of nothing, that we are self-causing um, our own thoughts. But it's it's not the ontology of, of what God has created. Nothing that God has created is evil, right? Right. So... God, we just said God upholds all things. He upholds Satan, even when Satan sins. So why doesn't that make God evil? Why is God allowed, quote unquote, allowed to metaphysically exert power over Satan while Satan is sinning and it's perfectly okay? It's, it's funny because people have a problem when Calvinists merely say, well, God 
God planned that an evil would occur. Oh, that's terrible. God predestined that, that God had a purpose in an evil that would occur. Right. That's horrible. I don't know how much closer you can get, metaphysically speaking, to sin than being the, the sustainer of the very thing that is committing the sin. But the reason it's not a problem is because God does not have to be, quote-unquote, metaphysically hands-off of the things he's created in the first place. Right? Because it's what he has created is not evil. Evil is a description of what is occurring. Evil is a description of, of the actions of human beings and or angels. And that is what sin is. And so there's, there's, and, and there's also, if, if sin is the breaking of laws, then there's no, there's no laws for God, right? There's no, there's no law that says, God, thou shalt not sustain sinners while they sin. God, thou shalt not plan sin or determine sin or purpose sin or whatever. So um, I'll get into more of that in my episode, but it's very important to recognize that God does not have to be metaphysically hands-off. And this is why, again, the semi-deistic view that a lot of Christians actually do have, it's not meant as a boogeyman term, they, they have falsely assumed that God set things in motion and stands back and sort of pokes around. And this is just not biblical. Yeah, and and I think to you know to further that point, I would say that that, it, that there's some ways that it's downright atheistic. Um, and, and again, I uh-huh. don't, I I also don't mean that as a boogeyman. I I mean that as as again as an accurate description because what what it does is it says, look, if God does anything that we don't like. Right. If, if the story has God doing anything that we don't like or that would be evil for us to do, then that being would be evil. Right. And, and I don't believe in an right. evil being. Right. So it denies the existence of, of that of that being. And, 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 I, and, I, and I try to do this without being too cheeky. But but I but I but I, you know, I think about it this way. Like, let, let's say I have a son, you know, I, well, I have two kids. And let's say that we were at a dinner party one day and I say, hey, hey, you know, come here. Uh, you know, I, I you know, I, I know you're a serial killer, right? Have you considered my son? Right? Have you have you, have you thought have you thought about my son? You know, I, I I know I know I know you like doing terrible things. Have you thought about my son lately? <laughs> right? And you say oh, you say oh well you know you protect him too much. I could I could never kill him. And I go okay I mean it's okay. I'll stop protecting my son. Why don't you go do your thing, and uh-huh. we'll see how my son fares. Right? Uh huh. I, I mean. Like, all of us would be repulsed by that, right? But I've just described the story, the introduction to Job. Yeah. yeah. Right. There, there, there's a very real sense where we want to say, and and I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to be crass. I'm trying not to, you know, to to, to defame God. But there, there's a very real sense where God is far more comfortable, to, you know, describing and talking about Himself these ways than we are. We have a very pedestrian way. Of talking about it, God has no problem saying, "Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm the one incited the devil against against Job." Yeah, you just you just posted um, some verses on Twitter where you know if a disaster strikes a city, has not the Lord done it? Uh, these sorts of things, right? right. And it's not yeah. has, has not the Lord you know allowed the free will decisions of the nations to do it? No, God has right. done it. It ascribes right. it to God, right? Or, you know, I, I I was in a conversation with the with the provisionist. And I brought up Job and they say, oh, well, you know, it, it was, it, it would have been an unjust thing to do. It would, it would have been evil and unjust. Cause I said, well, is, is Satan evil for doing what he did? Obviously. Yes. Of course. Right. Well, doesn't, well, God ordained it. God brought it about. God is the one who, 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 you know, spurred Satan to do it. Doesn't that make God evil? No, it would have been unjust, but God returned to Job, you know, uh, what is it? Four times or two times at the end of his life. 
uh-huh. which means oh, oh so so i can go around and i can i can i you know it, it makes it moral or just i can go around and i can kill someone's children as long as i you know by by adoption or vitro relation or whatever i return them more children than i killed <laughs> Right. Well, well, no, that's dumb. And then they said, oh, well, it's God. Well, God can do it. God can do it, but we can't do it. And I said, okay, but then at that <laughs> point, you've just, you've just granted where the Calvinist starts, which is just that, well, God, God's not a man, right? God's not right. down to the, to the, to the standards, right? God, God can do these things sovereignly and providentially. And though we intend it for evil, God can intend it for good. And that is enough to make it that God is holy, righteous, and just. Right. right? Yeah. So, and, and- we end in the same place. So why go through all the rigmarole first? Right. And when you get them to admit that, they've basically undercut their entire stance right. uh, against the whole... the cal- And this is why, again, everybody wants to use humanistic analogies and relate things human to human instead of understanding that it's like, well, uh, if, if I were to create a robot and then have it go murder somebody, that would obviously be horrible. And I say, I agree. Right. Because I don't have the right. Thou shalt not murder. Right. I don't have the right to do that. But what if I was the creator of two robots and my plan and purpose was that they would duel to the death or whatever? Are you actually going to say you might not like that? Like you might not like that. But are you actually going to say there's something illogical about it or something wrong about it? If I'm creating the world and I'm the one setting the rules, so to speak, making the laws and this is how things are going to work. It's God is in a categorically different position. And so many of these Leighton Flowers uh, love potion, right? Uh, that's irresistible grace is like giving a girl a, a love potion. It's like, no, I don't have a right over any girl to, to do that because I didn't create that that girl, right? I, I don't sustain that girl at, at all moments, so on and so forth. And it's like people need to stop making these types of analogies and just understand um, that God is categorically different. Right. Well, and, and the and the love potion, I, you know, Bignon makes great point in his in his book um, that that is well, effectively, all of these manipulation arguments are we we don't have the right to alter right. a God given nature. Right. A, a love potion actually works to to override and change a God given nature. Right. Well, why can't god who gives the god-given nature work a miracle and turn water into wine as its nature right right so yeah. so uh, you know the god-given nature just is what god gives um and so god god is free in regeneration to change me from my dead nature to a living nature and even though it's a change in my will it's not that he's violating my freedom because i'm still freely choosing in accordance with my god-given nature people to believe he's not i've heard some really bad i've heard people call it spiritual uh, rape or, or whatever and that's just like you're missing the point god is not violating your will he is changing it as the supernatural creator uh, of that very thing like you said he's changing it so that it is is uh, having different desires and so on and so forth and it's like god has the right to do that and we don't like i'm talking human to human versus human to god that's that's what i'm getting at here that's right um, article eight, we've, we've said a lot, uh, but article eight, the free will of man, uh, we affirm that God as an expression of his sovereignty endows each person with actual free will, right? <laughs> In parentheses, yeah. the ability to choose between options, which like, what a lame 
uh, definition. Oh my goodness, it's so like anyone That's familiar, painful. even even with libertarian free, even with libertarian incompatibilism in literature, that is such a bad definition of freedom, um, be, because because it basically equates quote unquote actual freedom with this principle of alternative possibilities, which even almost every libertarian philosopher denies is necessary. For freedom. <laughs> right. So it, yeah. it, it, it's just so bad. But you, you know, you can get away. You, you can get away with this in, in, in kind of church statements because lay people aren't educated. Um, uh, which must be exercised in accepting or rejecting God's gracious call to salvation by the Holy Spirit through. The gospel, right? Implicit in that is that you can override uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we deny that the decision of faith is an act of God rather than a response of the person. As if it can't be both. Right. <laughs> it's right. like <laughs> either either or fallacy. We deny yeah. that there is an a quote unquote effectual call for certain people that is different from a general call to any person who hears and understands the gospel. And I've turned the brass tacks on them because this is just flat out, even on their view, is false. Right. You take them to Romans eight. Right, the Calvinist is going to say, "Look, all those whom foreknown he calls, all those he calls are justified." Yep. Right. You, this this calling has to be something other than the general gospel call, because right. otherwise, every single person who hears the general gospel call would be justified. So they actually interpret, you know, depending on the prison, interprets this different ways, but they distinguish in most cases. That call in in the end of Romans thirty, uh, Ro- sorry Romans eight, uh, um, uh, Romans eight thirty, Romans eight twenty nine thirty, they dis- they still distinguish that from the general call of the gospel. Yeah, right. They, this to. is this is ca- this is the calling for the noble purpose or, or whatever, <laughs> still a whatever distinction, it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so it still is a different right. So there still is a different kind of call that brings about the justification that's distinct from the general call even on their view. So they, they, I mean, they just deny their own statement of faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when it, it, I had a whole bunch of notes on, um, free will. I don't know if you want to do that on another episode and just really crush free will and tear it apart. Um, and just move on with the, the statement. That's, that's up to you. Yeah. I think, I think, I think we can come back in another episode, uh, of free freedom of the will. Okay. Um, Sounds good. Because, because here, and, and I know, I, I think, you know, in listening to your episodes, th- this is where, you know, we, you and I are going to have a, some, some nuanced, I think, disagreements, nothing major. Um, yeah. But, th- but this is where, like, I'm very comfortable saying, um, ba- basically, I, you know, I don't, I don't like bully tactics, <laughs> in, e- even if it's semantic bully tactics, right? So I'm, you know, I'm much more comfortable saying, well, I mean, reform theology, we affirm free will. Right? I, I, right? uh-huh. I just I just have no problem saying that we affirm free will because I'm not going to let the libertarian incompatibilist hijack that term free will to only mean libertarian incompatibilism. Um, whereas, you know, I think I think I've heard you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you've said no, you're we right. don't have free will. <laughs> you're right. I, I take a position and that's because it, it's it's very good that you pointed that out. I have I already had a list of uh, topics that are along those very lines, just slight disagreements. Uh, I think most of these will come out of the other end of the discussion actually agreeing. But um, I would rather ask, what do you if you're going to talk about freedom of any kind, you're going to ask, what are you free from? And if I the, the only reference point in these ultimate discussions that actually matters is God. Are you or are you not free from God? So I would define free will as freedom from God, which I have already shown. Um, you're always, you know, you're always upheld by God's power and so on. I, so I would say that it, you're, you're never free from God. 
And upon that basis, I would deny free will. I understand what you're coming from and not wanting to let them, you know, quote unquote, hijack the term. I just think that this is one of the things that I've noticed over the years. And it's like, I don't know if distraction is the right word. It's not because you, you, you want to define free will in what you think it is, and that's fine. But I think it moves away. It, it like moves the focus over a little bit away from what actually matters, and that's freedom from God. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It, but. it, do, it does. I, and, and this is where I'd point out that, you know, we, I, I think in concept, we agree, right? But th- now, now this comes down to you know, a tactical question about semantics, right? It, it's uh-huh. like it's like engaging with an atheist, right? Do you spend your time debating and saying, okay, well, atheism, you know, it's just inconsistent if you, as you de- if you define it as a lack of belief, right? It, it, it in the literature it means actually, you know, a positive uh, statement of belief about the the you know the uh, a denial and the existence of God, right? And then you get into the, kind of the semantic debates. Um, right. where, where I, th- I think I'm more comfortable having that semantic debate, but I, but I understand why you would say, well, you're free from God, but you know, and this is where I would come back and say, well, uh, you know, I, I think that I have free will in so far as right. My, my will, according to my God given nature, right. The, no, nothing is acting exterior to me to work contrary to my will. Contrary. Yeah. So you're not being forced. Right. So I'm not, I'm not, I, I'm free because I'm not being forced against my will right that that's that's right. more of like the conditional sense of, of free will i'm fine doing sure. that but i but i also understand polemically or you know kind of in 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 that semantic sense why you would say well uh, i mean I, i'm not free in the sense that that i'm not autonomous from god right i i am not i am whether you know whether i'm and i don't know if you would say it this starkly but i'm okay with this i would say whether it, i'm a slave to somebody right it's that old bob dylan you got to serve <laughs> somebody right yeah. i'm either going to be a slave to sin or I'm going to be a slave to Christ. Right? Yeah. There, that, that's one of the paradoxes so, of the New Testament. I am a, I am free because I am a slave. Um, yeah, and so uh, just real quickly, um, when you obviously I would agree with what you said about not being forced and everything. And if if we're going to define free will that way, sure. But that is that's like why once again I stress the con- the contrast so much between God and the and the transcendent position versus what's occurring on the storyline level because what you just described would be what you would describe free will as operating in the, the, the creation level, that's right. right? Yep, that's right. Whereas that's I'm, right. whether I'm doing it, I'm, you know, you're far more studied than I am, and feel free to correct me, but I'm looking at free will more from the autonomous ultimate standpoint. And I just think, and even in my experience with arguing with people, it's sort of like a shock factor. I just, I say, well, I deny free will, and I start letting them ask questions, and I ask my own questions. And... It, it gets to the point where you expose the real issue of they do think they're autonomous. They, 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 they think they're on God's level, not that they're God, not that they're divine, not that they're all powerful, none of that. But that when it comes to determinations of what is occurring or determinations, ultimate determinations, eternal destinies, whatever you want to call it, so many people actually think that it's either God determining something or you determining something. And that somehow it can't be both. But I just like to say once again, you can't make sense out of the Bible without recognizing that God can determine that you determine something because his determination is ultimate and yours occurs in time. So uh, we're definitely going to hash that out more, I think, when we when we talk about uh, some of the interesting things. But I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so the, the la- you know we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about uh, freedom on, on another one. Uh, Article sure. nine, the security of the believer. This is the one that I always thought was was strange. Uh, given, <laughs> given given the rest of everything, right? So, so Archon, the security believer, essentially this, I mean, this is one of the longer ones. So we don't have to read through it, but essentially this is that, um, that once you're, you're a saint, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're Holy Spirit sealed. Um, you cannot, it is not possible to, to apostatize. Yeah. So I, I have quite a few things to say about this one. Um, number one, I've never heard an adequate answer as to how you can, maintain that free will must be defined as the ability to, I guess, sin or not sin, and yet affirm that you're going to be living in eternity with God where it's not possible for you to sin, and yet you're still loving God truly. You're still freely acting and worshiping and so on and so forth. I've never heard an answer to that question. But the other thing is, it's so interesting how they want to, they want to make, make absolutely sure that that first choice to accept Christ is a free will choice. But then every step along the way after that is, for some reason, perfectly okay with God ensuring that that you end up a certain way. So they, they mention, continues in sanctification. Well, did you lose your free will after you got saved? That's right. Or are you still making choices, free, willing choices, which we would say are now brought about by the Holy Spirit working in us, our new heart, so on and so forth? But if... If what what's to stop you from stopping God from sanctifying you is my question. And I don't know what they would say to that. I've never heard an answer to that. And then it goes on to say, conform to the image of Christ, including glorification. Well, why isn't my free will involved in glorification? I would say we would obviously say that it is, just not in the way that they would say that it is. Right. So why can't I choose not to be glorified? Is God going to be violating my will when he sanctifies me and glorifies me? I don't know if you've ever heard an answer to that, but I never have. No, and, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. Why apostasy is impossible, right? Why? Why? Why can't? Why? Why can't right. the 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 believer choose to no longer believe, right? To deny God, right? Why, why sin sin all over again and and break that fellowship again, right? Right. Well, and the, and the weird thing is, is that you know the, this is commonly one of the one of the polemics against Calvinists. They, oh well, you know, to get around the questions of of the elect and and, and irresistible grace and all that kind of stuff, they say, oh well, well if you know they appeal to First John and it, if you were if you were of us, you never would have left us, right? Uh-huh. And I want to be like, okay, but like again, that's not a Calvinist thing. That's a that's a anyone who affirms anything where someone can't lose their salvation. Yeah. Right. That that's a provisionist thing, right? So so I'm gonna look and say, well, I mean, what do you say to the people who, who, uh, who claim who who repented and believed, who showed visual signs, and then you know fall away and and, and die while denying Jesus? Yeah. Right. Do do you say do you say well yeah uh, you know that they that they were that they're ultimately saved by right so so it really is kind of that fire insurance once you believe you're good you can deny Jesus the rest of your life die in sin do whatever you want all that kind of stuff and you're saved you got your fire insurance or are they going to say well i mean then that person you know didn't 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 genuinely believe they weren't actually justified they weren't actually you know uh, they weren't actually being progressively sanctified by the holy spirit right they just had this outward appearance of it but then at that right. point like you know, they, they'd have to stop stop ridiculing Calvinists for that. And it's very ironic that uh, they want to constantly say that 
Calvinism can result in uh, fatalistic <laughs> attitudes. And right. it's like, so can your view, dude. Like, if you have your ticket punched mentality, that by definition is, here's a future fixed thing, and my actions don't matter. So right. I'm just going to live life. That is fatalism, like by definition. <laughs> right, right. And th th this is why typically, you know, we, we from the reform side, we'd point out that there is a strong difference between perseverance of the saints and eternal security, right? We do not affirm the doctrine of eternal security be precisely right. for this reason, right? We think that God actually, by his grace, perseveres us in Preserves, Christ yeah. and bring and, and brings us, but that our participation in that activity it is our actions matter to the outcome. Exactly, it's, it's just that it's compatibilistically it, it, it's driven along. Our actions matter. We we need to be sanctified. We need to be made more in the image of Christ. We cannot apostatize. Whereas eternal security can be this really you know your ticket's punched and then it doesn't matter what you do right because right. the outcome is fixed and 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 you know to to, to hell with the consequences. Right, and, and the, the Bible gives multiple examples, even regarding our general futures about, you know, you want to sum it up, God wins in the end, yay. But, you know, I could, I could, these are why, these are so weak when it comes to argumentation, like against Calvinists, this whole fatalism thing, because I can just say, you know, if God wins in the end, why are you doing anything, right? Like, right. why are you trying? Why are you combating evil? They always want to say, well, if God's predestined this or that, why combat? You can turn it right back on yourself. You, you, you need to think about and have your own answers to these questions. And what's ironic is, it's actually only the Calvinist view that can adequately answer and escape the fatalistic answers. Because if free will is true, then God has just determined that he wins in the end, regardless of what you do with your free will. So your, your, your view is actually, ironically, sort of inherently fatalistic, whether you like it or not. But we say God wins in the end precisely because he, he is working everything that leads up to that end. That's right. That's right. Yeah, their, 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 their view is essentially that Frodo can throw the ring uh, in, in what's, what's the mountain again? Uh, Doom? Uh, yeah, Mount, Mount Doom? Anyways. I think it's Mount Doom, but I'm listening to Wheel of Time right now, which uh, maybe that's where it's coming from. I get it mixed up. But, but it, so, yeah, I mean, Frodo can throw the, the, the Frodo's going to throw the ring into, the, into, the, into the, the lava, whether or not he takes the journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally illogical. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. La last one. Article 10, the Great Commission. Right. We affirm that the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned his church to preach the good news of salvation to all people to the ends of the earth. We affirm that the proclamation of the gospel is God's means of bringing any person to salvation. We deny that salvation is possible outside of faith response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Which sort of repeats my earlier point about, you know, not everybody, everybody hearing the gospel in the first place. Right. But... Right. And, and, and again, I mean, I, I've talked to, I, you know, I've talked to a lot of provisionists who want to say, OK, well, they want to get out of the, the weight of the argument of the unevangelized, uh, of infant mortality and those types of things. Um, and they would say, oh, well, you know, the, 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 those people. And again, this is where this is where the this is where the, the semi Pelagianism comes in. Right. They would say, well, those people, they 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 they're, they're not they're not held guilty. Right. Because because you remember yeah. on the provision is, uh, you know, Leighton Flowers is very clear about this. When Christ died, he forgave all sin. And so the yeah. only reason why people go to hell is for the rejection of Jesus. Right. He said yeah. that repeatedly as a whole episode on it. 
right? Which means the unevangelized are, are all forgiven. They don't go to hell because they never had the opportunity to believe. So therefore they're not responsible and they haven't actually rejected Christ. That's how you get out of the problem of the, of the unevangelized, right? Same with yeah. you know, children or the, or the mentally uh, incapable, right? Which means, well, I, I mean, salvation is possible apart from faith and, uh, and response of, uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, unless they do some type of like second chance salvation after, um, uh, after death, which is a whole different uh, can of worms to, to, to open. Um, but what that, but what that means is that, that those people actually, right, those people are good enough. Yeah. Um, I actually had a, a I, I found it. I had a long list of notes. This, this opens up so many questions. You brought up how uh, the only thing people are condemned for is the sin of unbelief. But how can you be condemned for not believing the gospel that you, again, that you never heard? Billions of people never heard it. But the only sin they're going to hell for is not believing what they didn't hear. Uh, it, you also have to ask, does that mean that everybody is judged equally in, in hell? Um and by the way, Leighton Flowers openly admitted that he doesn't even like speaking of hell. Okay, but the statement does affirm it. I can't remember if we already read it. We probably already read it, but it affirms that um, people are separated from God for an eternity and uh, punished for an eternity in hell. But are, how, how can we say that people are punished equally when, when the Bible talks about heaping coals on people's heads and some people being judged more harshly, this and that? It just completely contradiction. Uh, contradiction. And then you have the age-old argument that if isn't unbelief in and of itself a sin and so if christ paid for everybody's sins then why isn't that sin included right yeah yeah and there's i mean again just that, that that's just the consistency point i mean we, we you could go to so many bible verses that show that the 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 <laughs> who goes to hell fornicators and 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 liars and the proud and murderers yeah. and adulterers right so well it should just say the unbelievers the, the unbelievers right so so yeah. i mean this the, like paul's sinless and listen and revelation and such right though those shouldn't exist right those, those shouldn't be there shouldn't be categories in there um for for why people are are judged to hell so which it is a true statement really quickly here it is a true statement to say that the, the unbelievers go to hell right but the point is I've heard Leighton um, bring up, uh, I think it's a verse in John, that says uh, he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And they'll say, see there, uh, you're condemned because you don't believe in Christ. Um, but I always point out there's a very important word there. It's the word already, right? right? Which means that since they're not believing, they're already condemned. And they're condemned for their sins. And so it's not saying that the only reason they're condemned is because of unbelief. It's just pointing out that the only way to escape that condemnation is through belief in Christ. It's like if I were to say the man on death row was executed because he was not pardoned. Well, it's sort of true, but he's not being executed for not being pardoned. He's being executed for his crimes. It just so happens that being pardoned was the only way to escape that execution. Yeah, that that's that's right. So, and, I, and I and I pointed this out before. We don't have time to hash into it, you know, right now. I think a, a lot of provisionists are kind of very watered down dispensationalists, also. Um, and, and so you also you, you also have the problem of that, that statement was made during the life and ministry of Jesus, prior to the crucifixion, anyways. Right. So so it's not even yeah. clear on provisionism how that would actually work itself out because uh, you know because they're going to say, well, I mean. Christ died for everybody for all of their sins. Well, if Christ hasn't done that yet, then that then that rejoinder from them just doesn't doesn't make sense, anyways. Because 
you know, you're, you're dealing with during the, during the life of Jesus and they're dispensational. So that's, you know, during, during the time of law anyways, and, and you get into all these kind of, all these kind of other problems that go along with it. Yeah. All right. So, so that was, that, that's the last point. Uh, I, I, I wanted to bring up one more thing about the statement of faith itself. Okay. Um, because I, I have a, a it, it borders on an ethical problem. Um, and, and I've brought this up several times and, I, and I've done, you know, I've done the thing I, I you know, I, I, I try to make it so that it's not clear who I'm talking about because I want people to judge in an unbiased way. So I said, look, I mean, ima- imagine there was a Calvinist who put out a website and, and they said they, they, they gave an explanation of tulip. And then they said, okay, well, you know, who gives uh, non-Arminian, who affirms the non-Arminian view? And then they listed off like David Bentley Hart and Pope Francis. Uh, and they started listing off all kinds of theologians from all different perspectives who just denied, uh, you know, Arminianism or, or, or who, who affirms the non-provisionist stance. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. The, the, the problem with that, right, um, is that at the very end of a statement of faith, um, where you've argued for a certain position, to then switch and say, who are the people that have argued? So, so for, here's the provisionist statement. Who are the people that have argued for the non-Calvinist position? <laughs> Yeah. First of all, as if there is such a thing as the non-Calvinist position. Right. But the weight of it is intended to say, oh, well, these people, I, I mean, there's there's a little bit of a, a bait and switch there because, you know, if you aren't thinking really critically about this, it seems to have the impetus of like, these are the people who would affirm the things that have been said. Um, so, right. uh, so there's a problem. So, so after, after, you know, article 10 on the great commission, it goes into who supports the non-Calvinist interpretation. Yeah. Right. And it, and it gives, and it gives like Clement of Rome and Ignatius and Barnabas, uh, Barnabas and Justin Martin. I mean, a whole bunch of <laughs> it's high, highly debated anyways, but, uh, besi- but besides the early church fathers, it's it, for systematic theology, right? Also below is an ever-growing uh, gr- uh, mo- modern scholars who do not affirm the Calvinist interpretation of scriptures. Right? It gives A.W. Tozer, historic Arminian, right? Howard Marshall, Anglican. Uh, <laughs> N.T. Wright, Anglican. Yeah. Gordon Fee, right? Like borderline reformed. Um, right. You, you, I mean, you go through all of these, there, there's, there's Catholics, there's right. Thomas Odin, C.S. Yeah. Lewis, uh, right. You, you go through all of these. I, I don't know all of them. Some of them might be provisionists. I don't know. James D.G. Dunn. Right? Sure. Uh, I mean, you, you go through this entire list. Um, and some, some of them are flattered. Some of them are, are, are the people, they're historic Armenians who would say that the provisionist perspective that's given is, is very yeah. problematic. It, it's oh, yeah. it's semi Pelagianism, right? But it, but it does this, it, it does this like bait and switch at the end where it says, here's this whole list of people uh, who, um, who don't take the non-Calvinist perspective. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, there's lots of people who aren't Calvinists. Okay. Right. 
Why is this at the bottom of the provisionist statement of faith? Why statement why faith. wouldn't you list provisionists, like academic provisionists? Why wouldn't you list, you know, well, I mean, I, I know. Yeah, because, because that, that's the whole point is if you go to if you were to go read any one of those people, you're not going to get provisionism. Right. Even if you're going to get a couple arguments here or there that that would be against Calvinists or something that doesn't line up with Calvinists. Like you just said, you're also going to get things that completely just dis- refute or disagree with their very statement here. Right, right, and 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 they, you know, they might say, you know, they, they like Fl- Flowers does this a lot in his debate, where he'll he'll like he'll quote Sproul, right, where he thinks Sproul says something that's right. It's just inconsistent with Calvinism. He tries to show the the, the inconsistency, right? So so it could be the case that someone here, like Ben Witherington, is a Wesleyan. Right. So so it could be the case that Ben Witherington agrees with like one aspect of the statement of faith, but not the rest. Of, right. The rest of it. He might he might agree with certain things that, that are that are within yeah. this. Right. But I agree with certain things that are in this and I'm a Calvinist. Right. right. So um, so it, it 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 runs, I think, dangerously close to a kind of an unethical uh, unethical I, bait and switch and rather I, than saying, here's a list of, of, of academic provisionists. Here's, here's a list of, you know, the academic peer reviewed exegetical commentaries that, that argue for this, right? I, they don't do that because they're, th- those literally don't exist. Um, so y- y- when you don't, when you actually don't have a lot of academic, uh, and, and scholars who hold this position, you don't have a single you know, a single exegetical commentary from a provisionist perspective of anything like Romans or Ephesians or anything like that. Right. Yeah. You have to do this type of thing. Yeah. Otherwise yeah, it's, it's just, it's just patently obvious that the only people who have signed the traditional statement are, you know, lay pastors and pastors and, you know, a, a, a couple people here and there. And I just don't understand. Um, I, I don't know the point. Is it like a wow factor? Like, wow, that's a lot of names. Or are they, I don't think they're actually saying, hey, go read these guys. Because as we just said, that there's going to be so much of what these guys say that doesn't line up with what they say. So, um, it like, yeah, it's very interesting that they would put that in there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some of the, like Kenneth Keithley is, is, is a Molinist. <laughs> I mean, Dave, <laughs> they have, Dave, and I said David Bentley Hart on purpose. They have David Bentley Hart on here. David Bentley Hart is an Eastern Orthodox theologian, right? He's he's yeah. not even in the Wesleyan, Arminian. Can't, he's Eastern Orthodox, right? I mean, the, the list just gets ridiculous as it goes. Yeah, at least keep it on a, a more common side of the the fence. <laughs> at least keep it in the ballpark. Right, right. Yeah. So anyway, so so that that that's my that's my uh, you know kind of uh, issue with. I mean, besides the theology of the of the statement of faith. Just, just the rhetoric of it. It's just sheer rhetoric of it. I think uh, it has has some has some major problems. Yeah, like I said, every every article is followed up. Almost every article is. Uh, and by the way, we deny this part of Calvinism or this view of Calvinism. Right. And it's like. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Just your disagreements with Calvinism than you are with your actual position, which, like, like you. Yeah. Well, and what's what's funny is. Um, when you, okay, it says, um, right, so on there, right, you have Dr. Flower's book, that, you know, so when it gives resources towards the top, here, here are article statements and resources to help you better understand the quote-unquote provisionist historical perspective, right? So you have two of Flower's book, Flower's six-session curriculum, the Baptist faith and message, which, which um, you know, 
there are many Calvinists who say that you can affirm the Baptist faith and message. I don't agree with that, but they're, they're, you know, the Baptist yeah. faith and message is not exclusively provisionist. Uh, you know, Arminians definitely can. Um, there is, uh, you know, re- there's a link to the corporate view uh, of election, which, which is, uh, again, a blog post by, by Leighton Flowers. And then when you click on the, you know, for, for more resources, click here, right? Again, it's Leighton Flowers' stuff. And then, and then there's this funny thing, uh, commentaries, right? Guess, guess yeah. how many commentaries are listed? I didn't see that part. None. Zero. <laughs> there, there's, there's three, there's, there's three um, what look like they could be hyperlinks. One, one is the Tyndale commentary, which a thousand percent is not provisionist, but it's grayed out. It's not actually a link. It's just, it's just a Tyndale commentary. Well, Tim, Tyndale commentary on which book? Tyndale, you know, t- by who? Right? People's New Testament commentary or the new, the New Testament for everyone. Yeah. Right. Wh- yeah. Which, now I'm looking at it. Um, right. Which the the New Testament for everyone. That's N.T. Wright's commentary series. Okay. N.T. Right? Wright is a thousand percent an Anglican, right? He, 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 is a, he is a bishop in the Anglican church. He, he would affirm the 39 articles, a thousand percent not a provisionist. So, yeah. so like, like this, this, is why, this is why I'm saying, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, have, I have major issues with, um, with the marketing and, and kind of the, the rhetoric and the slant of this, because if you don't come and, and you're not looking at this with a critical eye, you're not going to see these type of things. And the average person is going to look and be like, oh my gosh, there's all these resources on this, but they don't realize it's like a hundred percent just Leighton Flowers' stuff. Yeah. Right? And they're, they're, and then you have this list of, of all these scholars, you know, I don't, I don't recognize all the names, so maybe a few of them are provisionists, but of all the ones I recognize, none of them are provisionists with the exception of Herschel Hobbes. Um, and then when you actually go to the, the series, like where, where would you get the exegetical commentaries? Well, none of the links work and, and a couple, and at least one of them, like the Tyndale commentary, you have people like FF Bruce were writing in that, in the, in those ones. So it's not clear which one they think supports the provisionist view. And then New Testament for everyone is an Anglican who would affirm the 39 articles. So it just like, this is the type of thing where I, I, I just, I don't want to say they're being unethical. I, I think that's too strong of a charge, right? Uh, I don't think that it's being intentional, but well, but they, yeah. they really should go through this and clean this up. It's it's like uh, I think Dr. White said they're defined by by anti-Calvinism. It's right. it's just very clear. I mean, they, they I think that they actually think that they are the historical view somehow, and yet. They're as 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 Dr. White said, they're the new kids on the block. And like you said, um, if they weren't the new kids on the block, there should be a lot more provisionist uh, materials to be linking to. Anyways, all right. Well, we are we are all we're you know we're approaching two hours, so I I, I think uh, I think oh, that's a good, good place to good place to end it. Do you have any any final any final thoughts? No. Um, thanks for having me on. This was fun. I hope it wasn't too. We've covered a lot of different topics and angles. I hope uh, people enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too mishmashy. Um, but certainly look forward to doing more episodes in the future. Yeah, absolutely. We will, we will have to arrange and, and 
and and and review maybe some some of the things on on uh, on free will. Uh, maybe some you know we, we can have, have a couple of talks on open theism or something along those lines. I you know I, I appreciate your work. Keep keep pumping out the the episodes. Uh, Thanks a lot, and, man. Uh, how how can people how can people on, uh, on for my oh, yeah. find you? Yeah, you can search uh, YouTube for the Consistent Calvinism podcast. It's also on all the major apps, uh, iTunes and um, Google Podcast, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and you can follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism at C Calvinism um, for lots of fun discussions there as well. There's a lot of there's a lot of trollish behavior on Twitter, but I pick my I pick my spots very carefully, and I think that a lot of people enjoy uh, those conversations as well. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. All right. Sounds good, man. Take it easy.